Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Retrotube. and welcome to another episode of RetroTube, the show where two best friends take it in turns to traumatise each other with our favourite old shows of the 60s, 70s and 80s. This week, and after an unexpected absence, it's my turn to introduce Adam to one of my favourite shows of all time, and what other show could I have chosen to blow anyone's mind than the controversial 1967 Patrick McGowan masterpiece, The Prisoner. On location in my favourite place on earth, Port Merion in North Wales. The Prisoner follows the adventures of the frankly terrifying Patrick McGowan, who stars as former spy turned renegade number six, a man who growls and snarls his way through 17 baffling adventures that barely make any sense on their own, let alone as a 17-part story. But honestly, who cares about a silly thing like a story when the village is so pretty? The Prisoner is known for dividing fans completely over a myriad issues involving plot, characters, storyline, allegory and metaphor, and even the order that the episode should be viewed in. But the one thing we can all agree on is that it's the Marmite of 60s spy shows. You either love it or hate it. I, for one, absolutely adore it. But Adam, what's been your prior experience of the show? Or if you haven't seen it, what were your preconceptions of it? And did you enjoy the episodes that you saw? Well, this is a show I have seen before on on multiple occasions. I've given it multiple attempts in the past. And uh, I've, I'm sure I've attempted to watch it off my own bat. I, either Channel 4 or BBC 2 did a prisoner night. When they used to do, they don't really do it anymore, but they used to do theme nights where they'd, mm. um, they'd have that the episode. whole... Yeah, they'd have the little documentaries about it and then they'd show a couple of episodes and, well, and they'd, they'd show yeah. something kind of related to it as well. And it, I re- yeah, I really liked just kind of bedding into that. It was sort of like the grown-up version of getting up on a Saturday morning to watch Going Live or that kind of thing. You've got the whole, you know, the whole chunk of time just to really get absorbed into this one thing. So I definitely remember seeing the Cowboy Western episode. Living in Harmony. Yes, and not being a big Western fan anyway, I did not enjoy that one at all when... This was like 20-odd years ago. And then a few years ago, my friend Shannon came over from Canada and she uh, showed me probably a couple, but at least one. One of the ones I actually watched for this I had seen before Shannon showed it to me. So I, I, it's been a show I've attempted to watch on a number of occasions. And my friend Peter once coined a phrase, uh, favoroid, which is something which ticks all the boxes for, for a thing that should be one of your very favourite things ever. And I should say at this point in the time, one of my favourite films is the monkey's film Head. Same. I love uh, How I Won the War. I even really like Magical Mystery Tour. So I I do enjoy an impenetrable 60s thing. Yes. But for some reason, 
the prisoner has just never quite slotted in with me. It's just like, like I'm enjoying looking at this. <laughs> I'm enjoying the, as you said, it like the the Port Merion and the the settings, beautiful. It's beautifully filmed and like the atmosphere is wonderful because it's it's one of those things that's really osmosed into popular, not popular culture, but sort of popular consciousness. Yes. The the penny farthing badges and the blazer and the the setting and the uh, rover balloon and the whole thing the theme tune which was used uh for bob yes. bob mills in bed with me dinner which is one of the things i used to stay up late in the early 90s and enjoy so it's one of those things that you guys can't help absorbing over the years so it's it's beautiful to look at but whether i actually like it is just I think like the prisoner itself, like the show itself and like the stories, it's quite a difficult thing to put my finger on. I'm very uh, conflicted about it. Yeah, I'm getting that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, and possibly this might even be what Patrick. Now I've written it down. See, I get also I get confused. There's too many. Patrick's. There's Patrick McGowan, Patrick McGee, and Patrick McNee, and I always have to check which one we're talking about as well. Uh, so we're talking about Patrick McGowan right. on this occasion. Uh, we are Patrick McGee. He's the chap out of Clockwork Orange, isn't he? And Patrick McNee, he's the one from the Avengers. Yes. I, I'm. I'm thinking uh, Patrick McGowan possibly intended. Some of my conflicted feelings about this show. I think he probably did. He seems like a like a very contrary kind of a chap. I get that feeling. Yeah, I I do understand. It is. It's completely one of those things where I've got a load of things that I should, on paper, love, mm. but just leave me absolutely cold. Um, I can't think of an example right now, but <laughs> I know there are loads of them, and I and I try, like I I have gone out of my way to sort of immerse myself in the thing Mm. and i'm like come on come on you should love this it's got this it's got that it's got absolutely it's got grumpy people it's got short people (laughs) it's got funny things it's got really bad acting it's got shaky sets i'm i'm i still um just a bit like me so i to i totally get totally get where you're coming from but i think the thing with the prisoners with me because there's always like a gap between the last time i've watched it i think i used to get videos out of the library so time passes and i think i I must have just not been the right age for this i i i surely (laughs) i surely love the prisoner i mean come on and then so i go right i go this time i'm gonna get it i'm gonna like it just did i just didn't get it before i just wasn't mature enough and i sit down and watch it and i go no i still don't like it (laughs) particularly I'm still not connecting with this somehow. Yeah. Like I'm enjoying looking at it, and I love, I love the '60s colors. I love a '60s color, yes. that kind of powder blue and it's that really bright yellow, and yeah, there's just something about the tones. And you get it in 2001: A Space Odyssey as well, the really beautiful reds and things in the '60s that are shot in really nice film. Speaking of which, can you explain what the show is about? It's about a very grumpy man in a blazer who has quit his job in the secret services and he's he's quit his job for an unknown reason and then some unknown people have taken him to an unknown place to find out what his unknown reason for quitting is and they yes. have an unknown reason for wanting to find out and yes. everyone's motivations are a little bit unknown 
and it's all a little bit inscrutable. It's a little bit unknown. I think th- I think I'm starting to get why you don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing that's unknown yeah. is which side they yes. are on. Yes. So th- you are you are right. It's 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 a show full of unknowns. Nobody's mm. got a scooby what's going on. <laughs> all that number six knows is that he's not telling anybody why he resigned. Mm. It's none of anybody's business. And to be fair, that is literally all they want to know. They're not even they're not even asking for official secrets. It's literally why did you resign? I'm not telling you. It's it's seventeen episodes <laughs> of a really really stubborn man <laughs> who just won't answer a direct question. I think this is my essential problem with it over the years that I've been watching it and just well, just tell them you're having a really bad just time. Them. Just tell them. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> In fairness, one of the episodes, we watched two episodes of this. We watched um, A, B, mm. A, B and C, and we watched Hammer into Anvil. Yeah. And I went rogue, and I also watched the yes. final episode as well. Um, uh, it was an unauthorised an, an watching, but I got curious and watched the final episode, which I have seen before on broadcast on telly. Um, mm. And in fairness, in this episode, he does tell them he's, he just wanted to go on holiday. <laughs> I haven't had a day off in 15 <laughs> years, just one holiday. <laughs> Imagine having to resign your job to go on holiday. That's just that's that's really extra. <laughs> yeah, I, I think if if we at least knew his motivation for not wanting to tell them to give me something, <laughs> give me something to cling on to, some kind of something I can root for. And it's very yes, yeah. it's very sixties in that kind of arch, unknowable, inscrutable way. Uh, before we dive into the episode properly, so te- it's, it's me mouthing off about it, but tell me you know, sort of why it's one of your favourite shows and what you get out of it. This is actually probably quite sad. So uh, I'm, I'm not sad in the usual me sad kind of way, like mm. actually genuinely sad. Um, I first discovered it and I had purposely avoided it for decades because Patrick McGowan terrifies me. And, 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 and that still that's that still stands and i have seen this series the whole way through now at least 15 times wow but i originally discovered it in 2017 and you have you've obviously known me for 900 years yeah and you know that i have been very very ill Mm -hmm. and 2017 was the year that i had to have some quite major surgery um and it was it was surgery to diagnose a problem that I have suffered with since I was eleven, and at the at the time I was I was coming up for thirty three, so it was it was a fight for twenty two years to get an official diagnosis of this illness. And at the time that I first watched The Prisoner, um, I was and still am bedridden most of the time and live in excruciating pain every day and seeing someone who was just minding their own business not doing anything wrong suddenly having everything taken away from them and not being able to get out of a situation they hated and didn't understand why they were in no matter how doggedly determined he was to fight against it it kept winning. I just totally identified with the idea, with, with with the whole being trapped 
without any kind of a way out. And it was really nice to see it presented in that kind of a way. And especially because, to a degree at, at the end, he does finally get his freedom. There was there was a big degree of hope that the show gave to me. Mm. That's what kept me and, and what keeps me watching and rewatching and rewatching. I mean, obviously, the you know how much I love bright colours. Absolutely, uh, we've talked about this. Um, Port Merion is literally the most beautiful place on earth. I, I've I've I visited about two years ago. Literally, just as magical uh, in real life as it is on the show. It's it looks exactly the same even now hmm. um the colors are just as bright and it's just as ethereal and magical and there's this whole beautiful atmosphere around it literally if i could live in port merion i would be well happy i don't know what patrick McGowan's problem is <laughs> if i woke up in port merion one day i'd be great i'd be great about it uh so yeah that's the answer that's the answer to that yeah. i'm sorry that went a little bit serious well, but that's, now i feel uh, bad it was. i love it i love the program <laughs> Yeah, best thing ever. <laughs> Even though I'm not a, a massive fan of the show, it's I would definitely like to go to the place one day to just to soak it up. And it reminds me a lot of, um, and I'm sure you had a similar experience going to Port Merion that I did when I went to Monte Carlo, because I'm a huge Grand Prix fan. I love the Formula One. So having spent years and mm. years and years watching the cars going round on telly around the the street circuit in Monaco until I felt like I knew the place and then suddenly you're inside the TV and mm. you can you can instinctively find your way around a place you've never been before in your life and it's just oh, yeah I know this corner I know this street yes. here and it's, there was a lot yeah. of that right so we officially watched a couple of episodes and I watched one extra but we uh, started off with A, B and C. Yes. Can you please tell us about the plot of A, B and C? Of the two, this is one I liked more. Right. It seems to be Inception in reverse, in a way, that they have gone inside. So it's the powers that be, the face of which is number two. So it's a different number two every, nearly every week, as I understand yep. it. And it's it's him and the other staff at the village. It's there job to find out the secret why did he resign they have a scientist working and she has come up with a method for being able to both see his dreams but also in the manner of the big computer from chock-a-block being able to insert a cartridge into him essentially and influence what his dream is so so in this case they've set him up with a fancy dinner party not a dinner party it's a fancy high-class party that he regularly went to he knows the hostess madam and they are going to look in on this dream. So they feel that he's he's sold out to the other side. And so there are three suspects that they feel yes. were people that he probably would be attempting to contact. So uh, they've inserted these three people as avatars into his dream and he's going to contact them and they're, they're using that dream to see how he would behave with them, whether that he'd be keen to sell them secrets, is, is essentially how that set up and it's yes i think it's a really interesting and intriguing idea yes that's 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 it that's what happens and uh, yeah it's it is definitely one of my favorite episodes i think i like it so much because a lot of the people who play number two are really charismatic and mm. and charming but in a really insidious kind of a way but there's not really a lot 
to like about this particular number two. He's just he's just a bit weaselly. He's quite a bureaucrat, isn't he? I can't. I didn't write down the actor who plays him. He wasn't somebody I was hugely familiar with. Is it Colin Gordon? I think I didn't like the lady who played number fourteen. And I really didn't like the fact that her hair was so greasy, it did my head in. And her oh. fringe was cut so badly, it was like she'd done it herself. Oh, no. It, it just... <laughs> I didn't it, notice. It, it drove me bonkers mm. the whole way through. So where, whereas a lot of the staff who take on the mantle of number two are almost snake-like in a way of being kind of quite insidious this they come across they like to come across as being a friend yes but you know obviously they've mm. got they've got an ulterior motive um but this guy is just he's just all out yes he seems very harried and panicky from the start he doesn't he never seems yeah, really in he, control he drinks he drinks milk so he's clearly got stomach ulcers and terrible anxiety which is really really not the kind of person that you need in charge of a random prison camp he seems like one of these middle managers who treats his underlings really badly because he's terrified of his superiors yes very much so there's an example of that uh, when he calls number 14 um after he's spoken to number one about trying to get the information from number six. yeah um, and he, he has he has some milk, and then he calls number fourteen, and he's like, you, "We've got to test the drug tonight." And even though she's like, "Nah, it's really not ready," you know, it's 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 dangerous to do it now. He says to her, "Just, just get, get it, it right, right, or I'll, I'll see, see that, that it's, it's proved, proved on, on you. you." Which is just horrible because she she knows she knows what it might do. It that was like a really cruel, cruel thing. Yes, it was definitely the actions of someone panicking. Mm. Yeah, we should have a look at the um, the opening sequence because that's so iconic and so long. It set up, sets up the entire story. Yes. It's music by Ron Grainer, who this is one of his big four famous. Yes. I'm sure he did many, many theme tunes, but he did four in particular that are extremely famous. Uh, and this is the first of, of the ones that we'll be looking at. But what I thought was interesting was that we see Patrick McGowan having a huge go at his boss. He's having a massive rant at him and he's written a resignation letter, but he still doesn't really give many hints. So I don't know what he was saying. No, that is that is a really good point. I've never even actually given that any consideration, but I think that's possibly because Patrick McGowan does always come across as an angry man. Anyway. Yes, he does. So just a, a rant from him isn't <laughs> isn't any... It's like it's nothing new. Mm. Maybe maybe he's not ranting about anything specific. Maybe he just came in, roared, handed his resignation in and left. Maybe the rant was nothing to do with the resignation. Maybe yes. it was just, you gave me two sugars in my tea again. How many times have I told you it's only one and a half? And, and then he was like, oh, incidentally, I quit. Mm. And, and him sort of like fighting with the air at the end when he's saying i am not a number i am a free man it just always makes me giggle for some reason because it just looks <laughs> it it looks so hilariously futile mm. and I, th I don't know if that was intended at the at the very end when he gets his freedom and he gets to go back home and there's, there's the this moment where he he go he goes back home and the door opens for him we know that in in the village the doors open and close of their own volition, either to the prison, the prisoner in their own cottage cell, or to the warders, um, and so it it kind of has the has the idea that wherever we are, 
and in whatever societal situation we find ourselves we are all prisoners to a degree and it is about finding the prison we feel most comfortable in right okay that's interesting that's 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 what i got from it um i am probably wrong and i am going to get lambasted probably <laughs> you know i th- i think i will be taking all the flag <laughs> no i think there actually was a lot of uh, you know the layers that i just wasn't picking up on and possibly just my frustrations were maybe obscuring me appreciating the subtler points that just like the plotting and the stories i was the the elements that i was frustrated with which we'll get to that i think if you're frustrated with something it it does kind of prevent you from seeing the whole thing Mm. the first thing i enjoyed about uh this particular episode was number two's giant telephone in the shape of an electric tin opener isn't it wonderful yeah you fit your entire head inside the... Uh... I love the giant wacky phone. Yeah. It did look a little silly in that it was it was that particular number two because he seemed so military kind of bearing, wielding this very futuristic, space-agey looking phone. It's a huge, phone. bright red 1960s piece of pop art telephone. You can imagine Andy Warhol sitting inside one of those bubble chairs speaking on a giant red telephone like that in his his white... Beetle boots. Absolutely. They keep replacing the number twos, and so there's all this pressure for the number two to get it right first time. And I just kind of think, if there wasn't all this pressure from number one, they might be more successful. Do you know you'd think, wouldn't you? It's just like if number one just kind of chilled out and said, "Yeah, take your time." Yeah. That we we we. It's not like we have to release him in forty eight hours. We're not the police. We've got him here for as long as we like. Just take your time. I think they get there much quicker than just having this massive turnover of number twos. <laughs> <laughs> you will never Sorry. not. You will never not laugh at that. Will you? <laughs> no, I won't. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm a grown up. Uh, yeah. Sorry. No, I'm done now. But this is a thing that occurred to me as on a, on a different point. So they, what they really want to know is whether he had sold out. But I wanted to know, mm. if you're a secret agent and you're going to sell secrets to the enemy, do you hand in your resignation first? Does that seem likely? And also you'd stay employed because you can then get more secrets. Well, yes, that is true. That is true. Logic dictates that the reason he resigned is simply because he didn't want to work there anymore. Oh, Adam. So either you just go or you stay working there. That's the only two <laughs> that's the only two options for uh, selling secrets. So I should have been number two. Adam, can I just tell you yeah. at this point, logic has no place <laughs> in this show. Well, yes. This, this will be, so this... don't you come here. Don't you come here with your Spock-like attitude. <laughs> By the time we get to the final episode, this will become patently clear that logic has no place. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few moments in each of the episodes where I actually think, oh, that's good. And uh, the first moment is when she has him on the table and she's putting him under. Oh, no, he, he's slightly half in and half out. Uh, he opens his eyes. And because they're recording his dreams she looks up and she sees herself on the monitor yes oh that's good i like that that works yeah that was that was that was a good moment Mm. madame ongadine is adorable and bonkers isn't she and she's got a great wardrobe she's very 60s as well ongadine darling 
I'm so happy you are here. You look as wonderful as ever. I should, but it cost. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh -uh. You look tired, darling. Things are bad? No, not now. I'm starting a holiday. Oh, the English holiday? Big boots and fishing sticks? Not quite like that. Where then? Somewhere different, somewhere quiet, where I can think. Oh, there is no quiet anywhere. No. <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> Sorry, darling. I'll come back soon. Of course, yes. Uh-uh. And remember, you're mine. Really? Be horrible to other women. I promise. Oh, thank you. She's every <laughs> uh, European rich lady holding a party in the 60s. It's at this point that... Once again, we meet Peter Bowles. Who's, Peter Bowles! Even though we've never met him or spoken to him, he's quickly becoming friend of the podcast, Peter Bowles. We love him. He is we our do. Guy. He is pretty sinister in this. Yeah, he seems to be um, number six's ex-boyfriend. I knew you came to these parties and wondered why we never met. She's a tactful lady. She's kept us apart, I think, until tonight. Perhaps tonight is special. I feel it's special. <laughs> Earth, as we are, or as we were. It's been a long time. Not long enough. We used to be friends. Once. With a lot in common. That's in the past. Then it's thick of the future. We're still the same people. They have, yes. a, they have a very former couple relationship. I just want you. Hmm. To you and to me, news is like air. We breathe it deeply. We draw it from far and wide. If it's interesting. What are you going to do with your freedom? Go fishing. Perhaps you're fishing now. What's your price? What am I selling? I'm anxious to find out. You never could take a hint. I don't want a hint. I want you. I was mopping my brow a little there. And shortly after that, we get the most telegraphed punch ever. Mm. Peter Bowles is A, so the A, B and C of the title refers to the three potential agents and Peter and Patrick have a very tense meeting and they end up by the car where yes. a fist fight and bongos ensues, so it's the most 60s thing ever. Bongos and punching. Who doesn't like a good fight in the 60s over a Citroen DS? <laughs> And what I like about this show is it's such a it's so highbrow and intense and intellectual, but it still all comes down to punching in the end. Of course, it always does. And even when you get to that final episode, which is basically just sixties experimental theatre, mm. it still just comes down to punching. There's some good old fashioned punching going on in there. The baddies really need to learn how to punch. This should be like the first skill that they're taught is how to brawl properly. Because they're so bad at it. I honestly think so. All of them, without exception, are really bad at punching. Then a sexy French maid arrives, because of course he's dreaming about a sexy French maid. Well, you know, honestly, uh, I mean, we, we, can, we can say that the, the guys in the 60s are all a bunch of leches. Mm. But, and, and also we can, say, we can say a lot of things about Patrick McGowan, but he is, he is not a lech in no, any way, No, I've heard way, this shape, about him. He's very... I've heard he is very loyal to his wife. Extremely loyal to his wife. He, uh, apparently, he wrote her a love letter every single day. Wow. I'd imagine he is very intensely romantic by the look of him. Yeah, I, 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 th I think I would have been terrified. I imagine there's not much laughing and running and skipping. It's probably just in, intense staring, <laughs> really long, intense letters, and she's backing away slowly. <laughs> but he wouldn't have any scenes in, in, in any any acting role that he did 
Uh, he didn't have any scenes where he kissed anybody. Even in another episode in The Prisoner, uh, The Chimes of Big Ben, there is a moment where he is pretending to flirt with with a woman because they're, they're, they're trying to concoct a plan to escape. And he's got his arm around her and he's um, he's like brushing he's brushing her hair away um, with his with his fingertips. Um, it's it's quite quite an intimate moment. It's not a romantic moment, but it, it's quite yeah. they're the, 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 the quite close. And he's not actually doing that scene with the actress. It's his daughter in a wig. <laughs> wow, a very grumpy man, but a very very faithful man to Mrs. McGowan in all of the possible ways. But so the character of number six, anyway, he, he's dreaming about a sexy French maid. So he has a confrontation with uh, B, who is a lady played by the late Annette Carroll. So in order to get the answers out of him, mm. uh, number 14, she talks through B. Mm. This is for, the numbers and letters makes this a little confusing. <laughs> So the on the on screen character, the fake character of B inside his dream, who is a potential secret agent, yes. uh, she becomes momentarily controlled through the dream machine invented by fourteen. Yes, and fourteen is able to use B to speak through her. So uh, number six becomes suspicious by this, so he starts asking her difficult questions. Who is your? He says, "Who's your son? What's the name of your son?" Yes. Back in the office there looking through his files and she says, he doesn't have a son. I don't believe in you. He'll kill me. How long has your husband been dead? Four years. Four years? Four years. How old is your son now? Son. Husband, yes. But there's no son. Help me, please. Help me, please. What is your son's name? That's an easier question. This the whole thing goes wrong because she doesn't call his bluff. I found that a bit frustrating. That if she had only said, "I don't have a son," you know, I don't have a son, and had gone along with it, they would have been in a better chance of actually succeeding. I saw it that it was a thing that was actually secret that only Number Six mm. knew about. Maybe it's his. Yes, that was what I got for. Oh, that it. could work. Yeah. But I still think they could have tried to front it out, even if it wasn't yeah, a bluff they, they to be called. Yeah, could have done a bit more than stammering, especially yeah. considering she's meant to be this amazing spy. She wouldn't have been so wibbly. So there's more punching, and that one has failed. But they're they're quite they're relatively convinced. I think that she's not the agent. So we're moving on to the mysterious C. But they have another break, and during this time, and this is my main problem with this episode. <laughs> Can you guess what my main problem with this episode is? I I, I can't even begin to imagine. Where are you going to start? <laughs> the fact that they've got this... They're desperate. They're absolutely desperate to get the information out of this one particular prisoner. And yet somehow he's able to sneak out mm. of his house and sneak into the facility and tamper with the equipment. No one's keeping an eye on him. He's he's able to wander around. He's able to dilute the the drugs that are given him. He's able to monkey around with the tapes. There's no security guards. No one's got him under observation. There's no security cameras. There are security cameras, but they're only activated when number two wakes up in the morning and decides to 
watch him so they haven't got anyone posted just keeping an eye on him and i can't help thinking that the writer could possibly have thought of a more ingenious way than just he snuck in so while i generally like the episode that was a moment that i just kind of felt was just a bit disappointing i, I, I really like the way he sneaks in and <laughs> you know dil- dilutes the thing but the thing the thing that bothers me about that is that the uh because he dilutes it with water, mm. the colour of the the colour of the stuff in the injection is paler. Yeah, like surely if she's gone to all of this trouble of, you know, arranging the needles prettily in a uh, in a little case and labelling them, yeah, she would she'd have know, noticed. She'd know what the colour was. Mm. But again, this 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 all comes back to me and my suspension of disbelief. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Obviously, he would do that. That 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 is just that. That's the next. That's the next logical pro- progression. He's gonna, you know, break into the lab and. Yeah, I mean, I I don't I don't mind that he tried, but just the fact that it was so easy and he was entirely there wasn't even a moment. I don't remember there being a moment where he had to hide from a security guard or anything like that. He just went. He just went ahead and did it. And, and I'll say this: I was engaged enough with the story that I found that disappointing. So then we end up uh, at party number three, or the same party for the mm-hmm. third time, and we're meeting the mysterious C. Yes. I genuinely was floored by this twist. It was the flirty hostess, Madame Ombagine. Of course. And yeah, I didn't see it coming. I don't think that it really was, because when because obviously you've got a weakened dose of mm. the drug, and she says to him, it takes a lot for you to sell your soul and he says to her it took a lot of thought right okay obviously he is in charge of his dream ah. because he's he's on he's on the lower he's on the lower dose and so he is projecting that it is madame Angadine, but it isn't because he knows now what the trick is so he's he's controlling the dream rather than the dream controlling his actions and at this particular party, uh, I noted down that uh, we have a conga line, which is the most prisoner thing ever. It's just happily Obviously. going past in the background. So uh, they go off to meet the mysterious D, who is an unforeseen potential agent. And this yes, is the, we have to call him. Have to call D. him D. Yes. Who is somebody with like a black stocking over their head, and I knew straight away just from the shape of the face and the spectacles underneath. I knew exactly who it was going to be when they pulled the hood off. Do you know? Gosh, oh, did I you not? Know. Yeah, I gasped. I I just could tell it was uh, it, dear listener, it was number two. He was under the mask inside the dream. But despite you know, despite spotting exactly who it was straight away and just kind of guessing who it would be anyway, that's the lay of the land. I think uh, I, I still think it was a really effective mm. ending. And there is another moment towards the end, which I think is is another one of those moments that I think was even better than that earlier moment as I suggested there's a bit where they can see their own control centre laboratory on the screen so they're looking at themselves on the screen and on the screen number six bursts in through the door and they both instinctively look towards the door but he hasn't come in (laughs) and that's another one where I thought oh yes obviously because it's his dream yeah Yeah, that's good yeah, no, that was I. I love I love that. Bit yeah, it's very he David Lynch. And he gives them the the envelope, mm. and it turns out he was really going on holiday after all. He says that he was never going to sell out. And and for me, that's good enough. It is. I, I would have been happy. I mean, I would have made a bad number two because I would have been. Yeah, I'm I'm happy. I, I I'm satisfied. 
he was going on holiday. He wasn't going to sell that. We've we've tested him. He's got he's got the brochures Let and everything. Then go home. Yeah, he's all right by me. <laughs> and then the final moment, I thought was really it 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 was kind of chilling hmm. when because uh, number two knows that the whole thing has failed. Um, he's just absolutely just dying of shame and fear and as he's in the middle of having this total breakdowny moment the phone rings and he looks at the phone and then fade to black and i thought he was good like he 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 was good at playing that kind of panicky weasley bureaucrat so the next episode up that we have uh, is hammer into anvil yes can you tell us the uh the premise of uh, of, of this particular episode Yes, so this one, um, we have a new number two, and I had a, a blinding flash. Do you know the band, the new number two? Uh, no, but go on. It's uh, George Harrison's son, Danny, and Tony Hicks's son, Paul. They're in a band together. I've known about this band for years. Wow. And I was like, why are they called the new number two? So I just had a sudden flash of, oh, that's why they're called the new number two. They're prisoner fans. Yeah. I like that. Um, anyway, so... Mm. This is about, uh, there is a new number two, yes, who's played by um, Patrick Cargill, the famous Patrick Cargill from the famous film Help, where he plays the superintendent. He's another sweaty, panicky bureaucrat. (laughs) Who He's actually more sweaty and more panicky than the last one. And this one is almost like a reversal in that it's number six who is the active antagonist, really, that he has decided that he is going to undermine number two's sanity relentlessly and mercilessly. And it's fair play because while number two played by Colin Gordon was a bit of an ass, this number two is a really nasty man. He is a proper fascist, this one, isn't he? cruel. He attacked the woman in in the bed Mm. who had attempted suicide to, to the extent where she jumped out of the window to her death. And this this is why number six goes on the rampage against him. The whole episode is taken up with uh, number six. Not they're not really pranks, but he is pretending that he is receiving secret messages and doing secret mysterious things. But it's all to yes. get under number two's skin and rattle him essentially. So that's that's the essentially the construction of the episode. There were ten pranks I counted. Um, and over the over the space of a forty seven minute episode, when and and by the time the pranks start, he probably only had thirty minutes. So that's a, a prank every three minutes. I think my thoughts on it were that I really liked the texture of of the uh, particularly the bit uh, where he is listening to the records and apparently. Uh, so it's, I think it's the first one where he goes into the. The village shop, and he uh, has bought a stack. He picks up a stack of identical records, and he's just listening to a particular phrase of music on these records, and he's timing it. Uh, apparently, looking for some kind of irregularity. And the, sh- the shopkeeper, uh, he phones number two and gets. To, he reports back to him and says he's been he's behaving very oddly today. But I'm um, I'm I, I'm a, a huge fan of Philip K. Dick. And I've read a lot of Philip K. Dick uh, novels. But I think when he, when uh, Philip K. Dick was at his best, he was a lot of his plots involved you know, people seeing messages from God written in the text on the back of the serial packet. So he was he he liked 
kind of pop culture and modern culture as a a vehicle for deeper meaning or for some kind of spirituality so it wasn't people wouldn't get messages from ancient scrolls they'd get get it from the back of a cereal packet and things like that so i really like it's a very phil what they call a dickian idea of um uh, particularly like he was a big, phil was a big fan of classical music so you can imagine him writing one of his novels and i uh, he, he was around at the time and I, I do wonder if patrick mcgoon was possibly a fan and had read his stuff but you can quite imagine that in one of his novels he would have somebody in the groove of a record or you know in a, a section of classical music on a record would would hear some kind of important information or some or something like that so it really reminded me of that kind of um that kind of philip k dick mood and it's never captured very well on film i, I think sort of films don't, don't do it justice the film that it's it's an unofficial adaptation of time out of joint which is uh, the truman show which is it's not an official philip k dick oh, adaptation yes. but it's it's practically the novel Time Out of Joint. Uh, and that the Truman Show is very The Prisoner. It's a very similar sort of feel to yes, it. Yes, it is. Um, so I think I think th- that has the, the that kind of excessively sunny 50s happy vibe with the dark undertow and that sort of surreal. Th- this, uh, this whole episode, but that moment in particular, gave me a very sort of Philip K. Dick vibe, which I liked. But I think... I also, I didn't like this episode quite as much as the first one because I picked up very, very quickly what he was doing and what his intentions were that he was just doing this. We we know that he's not a double agent or a triple agent. We know he's not there to test security. We know that he is just monkeying about with uh, number two's noggin. So kind of... Yes, he is. Once I kind of clocked that, it was... A kind of like, okay, I know what we're doing for the next 50 minutes or yeah, 40 minutes or whatever it is. I don't know. There was no sort of tension for me that I wasn't locked into really kind of investing in a, an emotional arc or some kind of, t- you know, the will he, won't he succeed kind of thing in the story. I kind of like, number six has got the upper hand pretty much from the start and it's going to be all downhill from num- for number two from this point on. So it was really like, pretty to watch and I, I enjoyed his schemes that he gets up to, but I couldn't quite connect with the story, I think, because I, I was pretty much on it from the top, if that makes sense. It does, but weirdly, it's the thing that I really liked about it. Mm. I liked it from the from the point of view of of a of a person who is, and I'm, I'm I'm sure both of us at some point in our in our lives, and I would hazard a guess that the majority of people listening um, have suffered at the hands of a very cruel bully. Yes, definitely. Um, have always just wanted somebody to come along and mess with them so much that they turn into a gibbering, weeping wreck. That's true. Yeah, and that happened. And I found it a very cathartic episode. Yes, I can totally um, see that. Yeah, because I, because I knew what he was doing, and I was like, "Yeah, you get him. You you get him. You do it for all of us." So it's kind of a, a revenger's tale. Uh, yeah, 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 very much so. I really, I really enjoyed that about it. Yeah, I can see that from that point of view. Actually, yeah. Although he does remind me of the director from A Hard Day's Night. He has a similar. T- like, it's a plot. He does actually say it's a plot. And. And there is a particular kind of controlled fight. There is, there is a sport that was invented for prisoner. <laughs> the bouncing Kosher. on the trampolines, yes. I don't have any idea what that's about, but basically, I think it's <laughs> it's meant to be some kind of wacky martial art 
involving a swimming pool <laughs> Two and trampolines. four trampolines. Four trampolines. And a boxing glove and a... They're sort of wearing red dresses. type of glove. And crash helmets. And a crash helmet. And it, it makes no sense. But co- but the, the art of kosher does crop up more than once. I must sadly admit at this point in the episode, my reaction was, oh, now they're bouncing on trampolines. <laughs> <laughs> Slight exasperations. Now what are they doing? Oh, they're on trampolines. <laughs> of course they're on trampolines. Of course they're on trampolines. Uh, I think I'd slightly lost patience. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when you get impatient with things. Good. <laughs> I thought Patrick Cargill was particularly good at the end when he does finally disintegrate, and he he's and his acting his is very good. Goes wild. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it is very good. Yeah, he does. It does uh, properly go wild. We're running out of time a bit, so I want to touch on the final episode. So one of my notes whilst watching the first two episodes was that I felt that. It was almost pulling in two directions at once. It kind of partly wanted to be an espionage spy show and it partly wanted to be weird and experimental and strange. And the two were almost... sort of It was almost a bit of a tug-of-war between the two and it was never quite fully committing to either. And I kind of was wishing that it would fully commit to just being weird and surreal because I knew that it wanted to. But I came to eat my words on that oh, a little yes. bit. <laughs> Oh, it does go full-on, full-on surreal. It does. By the final episode, it has abandoned abandoned all pretenses of rationality, realism, of wanting really to find out why he why he resigned any of the premise has gone nope it's all just bonkers absolutely and in fact um, what I wrote down was uh, this is an early note so this is when it just started um, this one at least has the good manners to be bonkers um, but I, I probably would backpedal <laughs> backpedal <laughs> on that thought not too many minutes later <laughs> No, you, you wanted bonkers, you really got it. It's a plot that's impossible to describe. It doesn't really... It, if anyone listening hasn't seen it, it has to be seen to be believed. It's quite... I mean, it's remarkable. Yes. I, I also wrote down this one. This is almost unwatchable, but also a lot more enjoyable. Uh, but I took that back as well. <laughs> it's certainly unwatchable. But I, I stopped enjoying it quite quickly, I must admit. <laughs> Yes, I wouldn't want to try and describe the the plot. It involves him being made the the king. He's put on a throne. There's some people in black and white masks do some chanting and some pre choreographed thing. There's, there's like a beatnik who sings, "Dem bones, dem bones." Liam McKern comes back from the dead with a new haircut. There's lots of running around. It's properly like sixties experimental theatre. It's not. It, I mean, it does make the monkey's film head seem rational and lucid it's quite it's quite an experience it's not i mean i'll say this for it it's not like anything else not necessarily in a good way i really like the use of all you need is love i've always found it a slightly dark song i don't think there's any intention that it's dark but there's for me it's always had a slight maybe i just saw this episode at a really young age or something like that but it really fits. It was a really sort of effective and effective counterpoint to the action on screen. And in fact, the moments when All You Need Is Love was playing, I thought, this, is, this really works really well. The rest of it, for me, didn't. The times when All You Need Is Love was playing, I 
it's like this is really working so <laughs> i actually it might be most effective if i just read out my notes yeah go for it go for it it's sort of like my progression through the episode <laughs> so this would be better with the monkeys in or absolutely anyone else uh, everyone is freaking out because the artful dodger is singing dem bones uh and i wrote this is exceedingly oh, yes. annoying i do i do like the 60s pop music there is still punching yeah this is starting to make me feel unwell i take it back about wanting it to be more surreal <laughs> i didn't want it to be this surreal <laughs> They're outside. They're back in the village. There's bongos. I feel I can breathe again. It's like, oh yes. <laughs> like I'm. So, I take it back. Everything I said about the other episodes, the prisoner. I take it all back. Yes, we're home. I feel safe. I feel safe. I'm back in the village. But do you find as well? This is another note. The end is just like the film head. Yeah, because they're all in the. the in the back of a truck, getting driven in the, away. The, the big cage. Mm. Yeah, yeah, in the back of a truck. Yeah, absolutely. Having the little booby. I like the huge dog. There's, it's actually just some passers-by in the background at the very end in the London scene. It's just some real people passing by and, and this couple, or somebody, has a really big dog. <laughs> so that's an element I liked. <laughs> I, I love how you singled that out as a moment that you like. That really gives it away how you really <laughs> felt about the whole episode. Oh, dear. I, I wish I liked it. I feel strongly it's something I should like. Uh, it's like a Lindsay Anderson film, but more so... Yes. Uh, and I, I'd have welcomed Malcolm McDowell. Um, so that's my kind of progression through that final yeah, episode. Malcolm McDowell would have been brilliant in it, actually. Yeah, that is, that's a fantastic shout. Malcolm McDowell would have been perfect in that. The final episode is not a thing that <laughs> you, you're right. You just can't even begin to explain no. what's going on. I did, I, I did start to feel it was trying to annoy me personally. <laughs> Okay, so who was your favourite and least favourite characters? So you're you're going to hate me and never speak to me again. Oh dear. But I really didn't like number six. And I think that was a big sticking point for me. Oh, no, 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 that's fine. I get that. Right. As, as I say, I am still terrified of Patrick McGowan. <laughs> I understand that. You don't have to explain at all. I don't think, I don't even think number six was written as a likeable character. In no, he wasn't letting me in. He almost felt he was too inscrutable. He was so inscrutable. He felt part of the whole thing. He wasn't the audience identity. There was no audience identification character. There's no way in. There was not a, a villa character that you'd go, oh, yeah, I know this guy. I recognize this guy. This is my way in. So I think had it been a John Steed character or someone just lighter, someone who could play with the environment a bit more and not be so like it's also inscrutable like the show is inscrutable and the bad guys or the you know the antagonists are inscrutable and the village is inscrutable and everything's inscrutable and i just wanted someone scrutable in there i just could we cast eric morecambe instead or <laughs> something like that? <laughs> just have someone in there <laughs> yes please aha <laughs> uh-huh, you're annoying me now anything <laughs> yes Absolutely. Yeah, I would have had Eric Morecambe as number six and, and Ernie Wise as number two. That would have been casting. Oh my goodness, that would have been casting. It was a bit like the difference between Mulholland Drive, Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway. At Mulholland Drive, you get Naomi Watts' character, who's this sort of wide-eyed Canadian actress, and she's really excited to be in Hollywood, and she's full of dreams, and she's a really sort of likeable character who seems really human, and you can 
go, oh yeah, I like, I recognise her as a person. I like her. I'm rooting for her, and I want her to succeed. And she's in this weird, strange, twisted world, um, but she's the character who guides you through it, and you really recognise her. Whereas um, Lost Highway, he's a very kind of intense and very closed off and right. very inscrutable in it, but it's very difficult to to watch and it doesn't have the resonance. And I kind of feel that, that we needed a Naomi Watts in there to be going, or, you know, someone to take me through it. Favourite character, Madame Ombergine. Oh, yes. We love her. She's great. I, I did really like, and I thought it was a really nice change, and I say this as someone who's seen all, all of the episodes several, several times. I found... I found it really refreshing how gentle number six was with Madame Ongadine. He was still his closely guarded self, but he was softer. Yes. He was softer with her specifically. What was your favourite, least favourite scene moment? Overall, I liked the the feel and the design and the whole kind of iconography of the place. Mm. Uh, I, I, I almost wanted to be more uncanny. I wanted to be it to be happier and more unsettling. I would have gone more on the kind of Truman Show sheen of happy perfection. But yeah, I, I generally like that kind of colourful uh, environment. Least favourite elements, I probably I probably banged on enough about the things that didn't quite connect with me. I think just it's just largely it, it wasn't quite my thing. I know, and it's and, and like you say, it is because I remember the first time I watched it, texting you and saying. I don't know if you've ever seen the prisoner but it's like totally your kind of a thing and it, it like you say on paper it's, yeah. it's 100% a thing Adam S. Leslie would love but uh you don't <laughs> and, it, and it's a bit like oh, 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 oh okay I don't want to be one of these people who who confuses my personal taste with raw fact I think it's a good show. I think it's very well done. It's well written. It's well. It's very thoughtful and well thought out. And it's yes, it's oozing quality. And it just leaves you cold. Enough people like it that it's clearly a thing that has connected with people. And it's connected with you in a very personal and profound way. And mm. even though I like strange sixty stuff, yeah, it just didn't didn't connect with me. My favourite thing about it, I I think the fact that Port Marion is shown as as a character in itself. Really, I don't think the show would have worked anywhere else it is it's it really is every bit as magical as it looks. it is yeah it and, wouldn't have worked in birmingham uh, every time i watch it it feels more of a love letter to port merion i really like that i really like that about it, it you know patrick mcgowan obviously had a great deal of respect for the place and and the things that clough ellis williams was was trying to achieve with the design and the build of of port merion as a whole I, I i dread to ask you this because i kind of know the answer but anyway <laughs> We, we ask the question, uh, would you willingly watch any more episodes? Well, the thing is, I think probably about seven years will pass and I'll think, I, 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 <laughs> I, must, I must like The Prisoner. Like, I, I just wasn't getting it before. So I'll sit down and watch it again and I'll go, no, I'm not getting this at all. So, yes, I probably will willingly watch it again. Part of me is intrigued by what mm. actually happens in the other 14 episodes. So, it, I, yeah, there might be a point at which I'll sit and soak one up. And it took me uh, 45 years to get into 70s Pink Floyd. And Now Wish You Were Here is one of my favourite albums. Exactly. So it can happen t at any point to anyone. Well, thank you so, so mm, much for thank you. through that. I appreciate it 
that, that you gave it your time despite all of the misgivings <laughs> uh, that was that was great thank you very very much right well thank you so much everybody for listening in this week it is so so nice to be back we will be back again next week with a show that Adam has chosen uh, could you mm-hmm. please let us know what it is Mr Leslie it's Tales of the Unexpected we really really hope that you enjoyed having us back because we have had a great time tonight being back mm-hmm. um if you would like to get in touch with us, you're more than welcome to. We are always to be found on Twitter. We are at Retro underscore Tube. If you would like to tell us something that involves more than 280 characters, you can always email us. Our email address is RetroTubePodcast at gmail.com. And we are pretty good at getting back to you. It really depends on how much I've had to drink. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't. But yeah, we would we would always love to hear from you. And if you've got any suggestions of shows that you'd like us to take a look at, please let us know because we are always here to experience new wacky things. That's all the words from me. Uh, good night and thank you. And what, if you've got anything left to say, Adam, be seeing you. This is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. My folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, and don't go to Almondby. Heather's on-off boyfriend Stephen has gone to the mysterious village of Almondby. He went for two weeks, and no one has seen him in six months. The only trace of him which remains is his voice, distantly calling for help, drifting across the fizz of shortwave radio. With a couple of friends in tow, Heather sets off through a warped, distended version of the English countryside, baking in perpetual summer, to track Stephen down, and to find out for herself why everyone says, don't go to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca called Lost in the Garden eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, a dreamy and unsettling masterwork. This is one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Wazilowski described it as like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful and uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Thank you, Matt and Eric. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Denink Books, priced at ten ninety nine. Look for the pink and white cover.